Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. So if you have been a listener or watcher of the Global Medical Device Podcast for any period of time, there's a good chance you've come across at least an episode or two where I chat with Mike Drews with vascular sciences and often, not always, but generally when he and I chat, we're reacting to some new guidance or some article or some, something that's come out uh, from FDA, this, that, or the other. We decided in this episode to, to change the perspective a little bit. And instead of reacting to something, let's be a little bit proactive in, and the topic that we talk about are some things that might be missing in the current FDA regulatory framework, gap analysis of sorts, if you will. So we dive a little bit into that and, and you know, maybe some throw out some thoughts and ideas on where there could be some opportunities for improvement. So I hope you enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and co-founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And joining me uh, today is familiar voice and, and hopefully familiar face by now for those of you that have uh, consumed the Global Medical Device Podcast episodes on YouTube as Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences. So Mike, welcome. Thank you, John. So a lot of times when you and I get together, Mike, we we talk a lot about, you know, maybe a new guidance or a new this or a new that, or, and I, I guess, you know, to kind of put it in a, a descriptor around, a lot of times we're reacting in some respects to things that are happening in our industry. And one of the last times that you and I chatted, um, you know, we were preparing for future episodes and, and you threw out this, this idea. And I like this idea not uh, a lot, uh, actually, is how can we be a little bit more proactive, maybe throw some thoughts and ideas and some context, leveraging your decades of experience, my decades of experience in this industry. Maybe there's some opportunities that are missing. Maybe we can help, I don't know, shape or throw some ideas out there and see if we can help shape some of some changes in regulatory policy. So, so what do you think? I mean, that's my take on why I'm, I'm looking forward to today's conversation. Why do you think it's a good idea to, to talk about things that might be missing from the regulatory framework? Yeah, well, well, great question, John. And as always, thank you very much for the opportunity to have this important discussion with you and your audience. Look, one of my many frustrations with the regulatory environment that we live in is that so much of the regulation that we have is, is created retrospectively, reactively, to use your word, as opposed to proactively. In other words, a problem occurs, and then we try to create some new regulation to prevent that problem from happening again in the future. And that's certainly an admirable goal. But on the other hand, there is a lot to be said for preventing problems before they occur. You and I on the quality side, John, have talked about CAPA, corrective action, preventative action. And one of my frustrations there is why the heck do we call it a CAPA as opposed to a PACA? Yeah. The emphasis should be on preventative action as opposed to corrective action. So that's kind of the, the reason why I made this suggestion for today's discussion, because let's be honest, John, there's a lot of people, you and I included, but there's a lot of other people out there that are talking, sometimes complaining about the current regulatory environment that we live in, the current system. But there's very few discussions with people having practical, tangible ideas on how to improve it how to make the system better, make the world a better place, fill in the gaps. You know, as I, as I like to say, this, this gap analysis, if you will, of yeah. our regulatory environment. And I'd like to, as we continue our discussion today, John, I'd like to make it as practical and pragmatic as possible in two ways. The first way is offering uh, our, our manufacturing friends ideas on how to prevent problems right now before we start to some of the changes that you and I are going to discuss today to mitigate or avoid problems in the future. But second, as you alluded to, John, we do have a few of the regulators in the audience. I have a number of my friends at FDA that listen to our podcast, although I'm sure they would never admit to that publicly. And so what I would 
but encourage those in our audience who work in either FDA or other regulatory agencies around the world, consider some of the ideas that John and I are going to talk about today. And if they make sense, maybe bring them back to your, you know, to your department, to your agency and have some discussions and maybe involve people with, you know, from industry, John or myself or other people. Hey, you know, this, this might, you know, be worth a discussion. So that's kind of the the backstory. That's kind of the impetus of, of why I thought having this kind of a discussion would be a good thing to do, especially as we begin this new year of 2022, looking forward as opposed to looking back. Yeah, and and I know we're all at a point in time with obvious things that have been happening in the past couple of years that I think we're all looking for uh, opportunities to look forward. Uh, And and so we'll put the the regulatory, the med device industry regulatory spin on on this conversation. And and maybe a, a good place to start. And I know for probably, well, certainly the past handful of years, it seems like there's been a lot of uh, discussion or interest in like 510k reform, and that comes up from time to time. And every so often, you and I have chatted about the new 510k this or the, the new 510k that. And then when we have the discussion, turns out, oh, there's nothing really new here. It's it's really the same old, same old. But maybe a, a good place to start to dive in is uh, from your lens, your way of looking at at the regulatory world and in the med device industry, what is missing? I mean, do we need additional mechanisms or, or methods or ways that we can communicate with FDA and, and even other regulatory bodies beyond the FDA? What, what do you think is missing right now? Well, first of all, John, you mentioned, quote unquote, 510K reform. So yeah. let's start with that. Yeah. Look, as we all know, the 510K is the workhorse of the medical device industry. There's uh, certainly here, it's, there's no question about it. But Does that mean that the 510K is a perfect program? Absolutely not. And anybody, and I literally mean anybody who gets out there and says that the 510K is a perfect program, I think, quite frankly, is naive or just flat out stupid. Because regrettably, there have been devices that have been brought to the market under the 510K that, quite frankly, never should have been brought to the market under the 510K. And so there needs to be adjustments to the 510K. I have never publicly advocated going as far as the Institute of Medicine a few years ago when they said, throw the whole 510K out the window. I think that would be, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But nonetheless, there needs to be improvement. I think the biggest limitation or the biggest problem with the 510K, in my opinion, John, is this phenomenon called predicate creep. And to try to address that, some people have talked about this so-called 10-year predicate rule, which I am adamantly against. I don't think that's a good idea. But that's certainly something. And maybe, John, because it is the 510K is the workhorse of the medical device industry, maybe we have a separate podcast in the future, specifically getting into the good, the bad, and the ugly of the 510K, because it's it's a good program, no question about it, but it is by no means a perfect program. So on the 510K side, there, there's certainly room to, to improve there. But in addition to that, I do think you mentioned, uh, John, maybe we need some additional mechanisms to communicate with the FDA. Yeah, well, I think the, you know, to your point, because the 510K has been the workhorse for, for so long, I think so many folks try to shove stuff into that, that 510K um, vehicle, so to speak because it, it, it's the most familiar, it's the most common, it's the most well understood. And, and it is, you know, like you said, the workhorse, but, you know, you and I've talked a lot about, I know you're very passionate about things like wellness devices, right? Um, you know, what, what are your thoughts about wellness devices? Are there things missing? Are there opportunities for improvement within the wellness area that, that um, we should be considering or thinking about? Well, under the general topic of communication with the FDA, as, yeah. as you know, John, I'm a huge advocate of communication with the FDA. I will communicate with FDA a heck of a lot more frequently than any regulation or guidance will ever require. But sometimes FDA does not make it easy to communicate with them. And let me give you a couple of examples. First, on the wellness side, we today now in 2022 have no mechanism, certainly no formal mechanism where a company can take a device to the FDA prophylactically if they think their device is a wellness device to be able to explain, here's our device, this is what it is, this is how it works and so on. For all of the following reasons, we believe that this is a wellness device and there's no mechanism for FDA to come back and says, yes, we agree with you or no, we don't. As a result, 
companies that have wellness devices on the market are to a large degree proceeding at risk because yeah. there is no way for them to kind of ensure that FDA sees it that way as well. Now, I have strategies because, as you mentioned, John, I do a lot of work in this area. I have strategies to mitigate that risk. But we could mitigate that risk much, much further if we had a mechanism. I would suggest a form of a pre-sub, a form of a pre-submission. Although it might be a little bit of an oxymoron when you think about it, John, because a pre-submission meeting assumes that it's a meeting before there's a submission. With a wellness device, of course, there is no submission. So how can you have a pre-sub without a submission? But nonetheless, that's just a matter of semantics. That's a solvable problem. Yeah, we just call it a a pre-market meeting with FDA. (laughs) Whatever. Yeah, yeah, Shakespeare said a rose by another name still, still smells as sweet. So whatever we call the meeting, I could care less. What we do need is a, a a mechanism to have a meeting, or at the very least, a mechanism to be able to make a, I'll put it in air quotes, a submission to let FDA know that, hey, here's our device we're putting onto the market without anything from you because it is a wellness device. And you know what, John? Let me take that suggestion a, a, a half a step further. You remember up until just a few years ago, the reason why a 510K is called technically a pre-market notification is because it was not an approval. The way it worked up until just a few years ago was literally a company would notify FDA of their intent to market this device. Unless FDA came back within X number of days and said, you cannot, then the company could go ahead and do it. In other words, there was no clearance letter or anything like that. So maybe we do something like that for a wellness device. Maybe uh, a company can notify the FDA of their intention to market a wellness device. And unless FDA responds with Within X number of days, the company can go go on their merry way and do it. Mm. That's a that would be that would eliminate a lot of the problems that I see some companies get into when they put devices on the market under the wellness exemption that, quite frankly, are not wellness devices, and as a result, they get in trouble for it. Yeah. What do you think of that, John? Well, I think it's, it seems like at least logistically a relative, as far as things go, a relatively simple thing to implement. It seems like it would. Yeah, uh, yeah. Remove a lot of um, ambiguity. So I, th- I think it seems like you know, as far as things go, it seems like this would be a relatively simple thing to do. I, I realize that government and simple may not be in this, the same <laughs> sentence a lot of times, but as you know, as far as you know, things like of that nature. I mean, because and I think it's a good idea because you know, wellness devices is. It seems like you know, certainly since you and I have known each other over the past uh, handful or so years that that's been a, uh, an area of huge growth, right? And because there's little to no policy or mechanism for wellness device companies to communicate with regulatory authorities, there is you know, ostensibly a lot of risk that is out there, not just from the company's sake, but also you know, potentially from the FDA's sake. So why not lean into it instead of be silent about it? So I think it's a good idea. Well, thank you. And by the way, I have made that suggestion to FDA many times. And regrettably, John, I would have to agree with you as a consultant for the FDA myself to put the word simple and government in the same sentence is sometimes a little bit difficult to do. But to be fair, I say I have the same frustration with some of the very large medical device companies that I work with as well, because they have just as much, let's call it bureaucracy bureaucracy, uh, as, as the government does sometimes. But that is a topic of a different discussion. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we talked about 510K briefly, but I talked a little bit about predicate creep over, over time. One of the other th- challenges that I see a lot of companies, like they'll, they'll get their initial 510K clearance and then they'll make a change and they'll make a change and they'll make a change. And each of those individual changes, you know, in and of themselves might not justify or warrant an additional 510K. And you and I have chatted a little bit about this, I think on podcasts and certainly in, in our one-on-one conversations in, in the past, but you know, over time, you know, a couple of years later, there might have been, you know, a handful or so changes to a product that, that received clearance that, you know, you follow the guidance from FDA. None of those had necessarily indicated or warranted an additional 510K. But, you know, what are your thoughts about some sort of follow-up 510K or, you know, some sort of, how do I communicate, you know, hey, FDA, from then till now, we've made these changes. Here's my, my mechanism. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, great question, John. We talked, uh, I mentioned earlier, what I think of as the Achilles heel for the 510K predicate creep. What you're describing now is what I call change creep. 
Change and so the idea is very simple. We bring a, a device onto the market under the 510K, and then we make a change to it. It's a relatively minor change, so we don't notify the FDA with the special 510K, and still we, we handle it via what we call a letter to file. And then a little further down the road, we make another change to it. We don't notify the FDA. We handle it as a letter to file. A little bit further down the road, we make yet a third change to it, right. and we don't notify the FDA. We do it as a letter to file. Sooner or later, John, when you look at those changes individually, when you look at them incrementally, they might be considered relatively minor, relatively you know non-significant changes. But when you start to add them together over you know a period of months or years, this is not just true for physical or you know mechanical devices. This is especially true for software devices where you know the the code is is is, is changing and morphing all the time. Right. So. How is it, John, that we have now gotten to the year 2022 and we still don't have what I and some of the other folks like to call a catch-up 510K? Right. I don't mean ketchup in the hot dog and mustard sense of the word, John. And it reminds me of the famous ketchup and mustard video that you did yeah. many years ago, which I still use to this day in many of my trainings uh, on substantial equivalence. Uh, but why we don't have a catch-up 510K uh, as part of our uh, official 510k vernacular, it absolutely astounds me. Now, this is a perfect example, John, when I said earlier, um, I want to make this pragmatic. I, I would like FDA to create a catch-up 510k, and I would be more than happy to work with them to do it. But in the meantime, I refuse to use regulation as an excuse to hold me back. Right. In other words, I've had many companies tell me, well, we would like to notify the FDA of our changes. However, there is no mechanism to do it, and therefore, uh, we can't notify them. With all due respect, bull, you know what? We need to figure out a way in order to notify. There's one way to do it. What I often recommend to companies, because I do a lot of work in this space, is take all of these changes and package them together in a special 510K. And um, uh, maybe the main objective of that special 510K would be to make a significant change to your device. Like for example, adding a new indication or changing some of action or something. So you're gonna end up submitting a special 510K anyway. Well, if you're gonna submit a special 510K anyway, why don't you use, use that as an opportunity to embed those other changes in Absolutely. the same 510K. And when you present it to the agency, you say, look, as a matter of professional courtesy, we want to notify you of these changes that we've already made over the last X number of min months or years or whatever it is. And oh, by the way, here are all the reasons why uh, it is justified to do these as a uh, as a letter to file. And now we're putting it into our special 510K and move forward from here. It's sort of a kludgy solution, John, I'll admit, but it's unless and until we actually have a catch-up 510K or something substantially equivalent to it. I don't see a better solution to that problem. Do you, yeah. John? Well, you know, as you, you talked a little bit about that, it, I was, um, I remembered, uh, you know, a few years ago when I dove deep into the FDA's case for quality initiative. And, you know, and specifically, I remember, you know, their initial focus on the case for quality was uh, focused on PMA uh, devices, class three devices. And one of the things that they learned um, before, you know, kicking out off this case for quality initiative is that a lot of companies uh, were not making changes to PMA devices <clears throat> because the regulatory hurdles and, and burden was too great. So they knew of changes to improve the product, uh, but because of the, the barriers and, and the constraints and, and the obstacles and roadblocks you know, that were required from a regulatory perspe perspective, these companies were sitting on these changes. So this is a case, you know, that's you know, maybe more of an extreme example, but the 510K does give you a little bit more, I'll say freedom to operate, so to speak. Um, and, you know, best practice companies are going through those decision trees and documenting, you know, their decisions and, and letter to file. So I think, I think this is just a, a good mechanism to be able to say, hey, FDA, we've made these changes and here's why we made those changes. And here's the, you know, how we derived that the decision of, of letter to file and so on and so forth. But it's all about this continuous improvement, you know, and, and I think this is Continuous improvement should be one of the things that we strive for as medical device companies. And, and I, I'm glad to hear that you don't let the uh, 
uh, lack or, or current regulatory framework become an obstacle or an impediment, you know, for you and your clients? Because I, I think it's just it's just good practice to be able to say, hey, these are this is what we're doing, and this is why we're doing it. Well, regrettably, John, there's a lot of truth to what you said in the class three yeah. PMA universe. When a yeah. company brings a device onto the market, they don't want to make a change. That's really the 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 um, uh, one of the biggest problems that the drug world faces. Because when a drug company gets a device, sorry, gets a drug uh, approved, they don't want to do anything. I literally mean anything to change it because of the reasons that you just suggested. In the class three, in the PMA universe, it's not quite as bad as in drugs, but it's much, much more challenging than in the class two universe. And I love the phrase that you use in class, the class two world. We have more of a freedom to operate, if you will. We have more freedom to changes than we do in the class three universe or certainly in the drug universe for all of the obvious reasons. I mean, that's, that to me goes without saying, but here's one other suggestion along those lines, John, under the category of um, uh, uh, improving our methods of communication with the FDA. Why why not have yet another pre-sub, as you know, I'm a huge fan of the pre-sub process, John, where separate and distinct from a special 510K, we could go to the FDA to vet a letter a, a letter to file or a series of letters to file, maybe before we implement them, yeah. just to make sure that FDA agrees that, hey, this is a legitimate letter to file as opposed to something that would require either a 510K, uh, special 510K or or in the PMA world, a PMA supplement. One of my customers last year, John, uh, they got into a huge amount of trouble because they made some changes to uh, their device on the market without going to the FDA first. And as a result, the FDA found out about it. And <laughs> I'll, I'll spare you the gory details, but you can just uh, imagine you know, the, the potential outcome there. So there's the, we need to be more proactive. We need to be, right. you know, as opposed to reactive. And some of the things that we're talking about here, I think would really minimize, if not eliminate, a lot of the problems that companies run into. Mm-hmm. So let's um, you know maybe shift slightly and, and think about what's what might be missing from a, a manufacturing point of view, and you know I guess to kind of set that up a little bit, you know as a medical device company, one of the things that that um, happens as part of normal course of operation is from time to time, the product uh, specific or product dependent um, or product influence rather. Uh, for sure, but you know, I, I I should expect I'm going to be inspected from time to time by FDA, and as a result of of that FDA inspection, you know, I could have issues that are identified in the form of 43 observations or possibly even warning letter. Hopefully not, but it happens. And and now me as manufacturer, I need to take action to address those issues. I've been through this unfortunately a time or two, you know, largely in, in consulting trying to help companies get out of their, the, you know, some trouble, so to speak, or address 43 observations or warning letter issues. And that dialogue or that exchange of information from FDA, man, it is, um, it is far from ideal. So what do you think is missing from that perspective? (coughs) Yeah, great question, John. And once again, I find it fascinating, not a criticism, but simply an observation that we are now beginning 2022 and we do not have a formal mechanism of communication to address concerns related to 43s or, uh, as you suggested, John, worse, warning letters. When a company, and I've seen it happen many times, I know you have as well, when a company gets 43 observations or when they get a warning letter and they try to address them, they implement changes, whatever it is, having some mechanism, maybe yet another form of a pre-sub, although in this particular case, it would be, I suppose, a post-sub because it would be after the submission. The device is obviously on the market. But again, what you call it, I don't care. Some way that you can formally present and ideally meet with the agency to say, hey, these were the problems that were identified before. These are the actions that we took to try to prevent them or correct them. Just want to make sure prior to you coming on, knocking on our doors and again in the future and saying, no, 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 sorry, this particular uh, fix doesn't fix the problem. Just want to make sure that in your book, this also, you know, uh, solves the problem. I don't think there's anything unreasonable about what I'm asking for. When, when FDA says, you know, we want to work collaboratively with industry or when industry says we want to work collaboratively with the FDA, I say, that's great, but 
prove it. You know, where's yeah. the evidence that we're actually doing that? I don't see a lot of evidence that we're doing as good of a job of that as, as we could be. Yeah. And, and on that topic specifically, I mean, <clears throat> and I think what I'll describe is a fairly typical process. We You have FDA inspection, issues are identified, me as company, I now, you know, work diligently to try to Hopefully, I had good exchange of information with the 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 FDA investigator. Hopefully, I asked enough questions to truly understand. But you know, in, regardless, now I'm diligently I'm, I'm scrambling the team together to try to figure out our, our initial response. I type it all up. I send it. Yes, I do send it electronically. But then it's like it might as well be sending it in snail mail, you know, because I may or may not hear back from the agency. But I'm. But now I feel this pressure. I have to take action, you know, and and I'm gonna cross my fingers and and hopefully take the right action. But if I knew what the right action was, I probably wouldn't have had the issue to begin with. But I have no collaboration with the agency, uh, so I take these actions and then I send another update. And then again, crickets. I don't hear anything. Eventually, I'm gonna say I've addressed all these things, and then the FDA is gonna say, "Great, we're gonna send a, an, a another uh, investigator out. We're gonna do a follow up inspection, and you, you may or may not have done or addressed the issues to their satisfaction." So that lack of exchange of information just creates a lot of uh, frustration. As you pointed out yourself at the beginning of our discussion today, John, very succinctly but very elegantly, do we want to be proactive or do we want to be reactive? What, right. what, we're, what I'm trying to share here, both for my industry friends as well as my FDA friends, is ways that we can be proactive and try to, you know, pack us rather than cap us, yes. you know, prevent problems as opposed to correcting them once they happen. And I'll give you a, a quick example going back to one of the things you mentioned a moment ago in the class three universe and how companies, you know, they don't want to make improvements to their devices or their manufacturing processes because they're afraid that that's going to open up a Pandora's box when it comes to FDA and so on. Some of the companies that I work with, not many, but a few of the largest companies that I work with, as a matter of company policy, John, they have told their R&D engineers only to make changes to a device that's on the market to the point where we can handle those changes as a letter to file. Do not past that magic line of where what would be necessary for a special 510k or a PMA supplement. And the reason why that makes my blood pressure go up, John, as a biomedical engineer and a former R&D engineer, can you think of any better way to, to prevent innovation, to prevent improvements than by giving your R&D engineers that kind of a mandate don't make changes that go beyond the point where we'd have to notify the FDA. Yeah. I'm sorry, John, but that I don't think, you know, is any of our best, about our best interests. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a whole different show in and of itself. I'll change topics slightly. So uh, one of the notes that you sent over is um, the question along the lines of, you know, t- talking about a de novo version uh, of PMA. And, and I was thinking about that one a little bit. Um, and I'll, I'll, and I was a little confused because to me, you know, PMA, not always, but I mean, de novo, I guess, rather the, when I think of de novo, I think of something novel and new and, and unique. Not all PMAs are novel, new, unique, but, but a fair amount are. So I guess, what are you, what are you thinking there? A de novo version of PMA? Well, so I guess I would respectfully challenge your last premise, John, that okay. when you said a lot of PMAs are novel or unique, as a con- on the contrary, I would argue that just like in the class two, 510K and de novo universe, the vast majority of PMAs are in fact not novel or or unique. They are okay. high risk. They are class three devices, but bare metal stents. you know, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of bare metal stents, All right, but okay. yeah. they all basically work the same. They're all PMAs. So the question is, um, should we treat all PMAs equally? You know, they are all class three devices, but we, but should we treat them all equally in terms of the, the, uh, the testing that's necessary, benchtop, animal, clinical, in terms of the review that's necessary by FDA? In the class two universe, John, as you know, we do not underline not treat all class two devices uh, as if they are the same. Some class two devices, the majority of the devices that are me too devices, 
those are 510k applicable and those are you know that they're they're um relying usually on a well-established technology and so they can get away with uh less rigorous testing less rigorous review and so on on the other hand other class two devices that aren't truly new or novel that might use a, a new mechanism of action or that might uh, go after a, a new indication. Uh, the technology is not well established. So the burden is higher in terms of data testing, you know, benchtop, clinical, sometimes um, sometimes clinical or, or animal. The, the review by the agency is more um, is more thorough. It usually takes longer. Does it make sense to treat all PMAs the same? If we have a Me Too PMA, what I like to call a 510K-like PMA. So like su substantial equivalence or is, yeah, incorporating yeah. that into the PMA world? Yeah. Well, you know what, John? It's interesting because, uh, you know, sometimes people will ask me, is there a concept of substantial equivalence in the PMA world or can we use a predicate for a PMA device? Well, every regulatory textbook will say, and probably not. 99.9% .9 of the regulatory professionals will say that no, you, there is no concept of substantial equivalence in the PMA world. You cannot use a predicate in the PMA world. Well, I could. I don't care what the majority says. I don't care what the, the textbook says. I use the concept of predicates or substantial equivalence in the PMA world all the time. And just as a reminder for our audience, John, a while ago, I did a webinar on the PMA for Greenlight Guru, and I talked about this in more detail. But in a nutshell, I use the concept of substantial equivalence or predicates for uh, class three devices, not in the regulatory sense, but in the engineering sense. And specifically, what I mean by that is in terms of testing and in terms of risk mitigation. So in other words, if my technology is similar to another device that's on the market as a uh, as a class three device and the testing that they did uh, might be applicable to the to the testing that I need to do. So I'll use that in a substantial on the risk mitigation side if my technology is similar to another device's technology it stands to reason that some of the risks for the other device might be applicable to my device so i'm using the regulatory logic of substantial equivalence in the pma in the class three universe all the time i'm not using right. it in regulatory sense i'm using it in the <clears throat> uh, biomedical engineering sense but that brings us to the right. current question john because that I've been doing a long time. What would be so bad about actually having a formal concept of substantial equivalence in the class three universe? Again, I'll go back to the stent example. We have dozens and dozens of bare Absolutely. metal stents. Yeah, they all have slightly different shapes. They have you know slightly different materials. But at the end of the day, the mechanism of action is exactly the same. Right. So why can't we still have a class three PMA device, but you? Use a substantial equivalence-like argument. In other words, create a 510K version of the PMA. Right. And then we have a de novo version of the PMA. And by the way, John, one of the advantages, potential advantages of doing that is it would allow us to apply our resources much more efficiently. Absolutely. And when I talk about resources here, I'm not talking about just the company. I'm talking about the FDA. Because why does the FDA need to apply the same amount of resources for a 510K PMA as opposed to a de novo PMA? We don't do it in the class two universe. My question to you and to the rest of our audience, John, both in industry as well as FDA, if we don't do it in the class two universe, why don't we, why can't we do it in the class three universe? At least it's something that we should talk about. Well, I think it's, you know, it's interesting because um, to your point, I mean, all, all PMAs are sort of treated equal, so to speak. I mean, with respect, with the, the rigor, the expectations and so on and so forth. But, you know, to your clarification, there are plenty of PMAs that are, uh, let's be honest, you know, Me Too products, right? The yep. stand is a great example. Um, so, you know, maybe more of that predicate or that substantial uh, equivalence should be the me or the basis, the primary basis of my PMA rather than, you know, lengthy, extensive clinical trials and things that I, that nature. And, but come, coming back. 
Yeah, give you, let me give you one other quick example. Yeah. Uh, sorry, quick uh, advantage of a 510k like PMA. I gave an example of an advantage for the FDA being able to apply more resources to a de novo like PMA as opposed to a 510k like PMA. But on the industry side, you and I both know because we both work with a lot of small and startup companies. If you go to a potential investor, an angel or a VC, and say our device is a PMA, then pretty much the investor yeah. is going to say yeah. end of discussion. Yeah. And don't let the door hit you, you know what on the way out. Yeah. However, if you go to the uh, potential investor and say, yeah, our device is a PMA, but it is a 510K like PMA as right. opposed to a de novo PMA, I think it might be easier, might be more palatable for that investor to sign the check. So it's the, this, this, and you and I have talked about this before, John, this perception in the industry, especially in the investor community, that PMAs are so much more time consuming and expensive and risky and so on. It's really holding us back. There are a heck of a lot more devices that we could and should have out there that we don't because we don't have a 510k like PMA. Well, last thing I'll say on the, the PMA path, um, and then we can you know, maybe shift gears a little bit is the things that you have to do for a PMA product don't always make sense. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you limit that statement, John, just to the PMA world? Well, yeah, okay, but, but, <laughs> but it, seems to be, it, it seems to be more egregious in, in the PMA world than, than it does in a, you know, maybe a 510K type product. But, you know, you, you and I recently, one of the recent conversations, you and I talked uh, about, you know, the EUA and, and sort of the, the state of affairs there, not to, to rehash that. Um, but, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, basically helping people understand, hey, this EUA thing is is coming to an end. We don't know exactly when, but sometime soon. And, you know, EUA is not a uh, forever um, permission to have your, your medical device on, on the market and companies need to be doing some follow-on activities and that sort of thing. But um, there's been a, the reason I bring that up a little bit is, this isn't exactly uh, accurate, but I think for the sake of conversation, well, it'll it'll trigger some thoughts, I'm sure. But um, you know, EUA is meeting a need. Uh, the intent behind it is to meet a need of a pandemic, in this case, COVID. But there is precedent, I think, for for addressing or getting products that that address a safety need, or get, getting a product to market more quickly that are proven safe, rather. And then being able to do some follow-on activities at a, at a future date and time to demonstrate efficacy. Um, so, you know, I, I fumbled through that a little bit, but um, what are your thoughts about, you know, allowing some sort of uh, lower barrier to entry uh, that, uh, for a product that's demonstrated as safe with maybe, a, uh, you know, this probably is, is regulatory risk here, but with the, the I promise to uh, statements that I will gather data on its efficacy and follow back up, you know, what, what are some thoughts about that? Well, first of all, before we get to uh, the latter part of what you're describing in the regulatory world, John, what we call a promise note, I'm really glad that you mentioned the EUA, especially in, you know, at the end of our PMA class three discussion. And the reason why. There is precedent for this 510K-like PMA idea, and the EUA is the perfect example. What I mean by that is the vast majority of EUAs that have been authorized by FDA to date are what I call 510K-like EUAs. In yes. other words, they are devices that are usually already on the market for something else. And then the company has gone to the FDA with an EUA specifically to add the COVID indication. So basically, they're showing that their device is substantially equivalent to the previous device with the addition of the COVID indication. That's the reason why. That's the mm, not the regulatory justification, but the biomedical engineering justification that EUAs can go through the system more quickly if it is a 510K-like EUA. On the other hand, there's a very, very small, and I literally mean small, number of devices that are what I call de novo-like EUAs, where this is not a existing device. This is a new device. It's not on the market for anything yet. Right. Uh, it might use a totally new mechanism of action that is not established, that's never been used before. And I have some companies, John, one in particular, that had a really hard time understanding 
understanding why their EUA taking so much longer to go through the FDA than all of the other EUAs. And I've said to them many, many times that regrettably, you are not a 510K-like EUA. You are a de novo-like EUA. So this concept of you know a 510K-like PMA or a de novo-like PMA, uh, it's not a, a foreign concept. You know, as we've talked about before, John, we have tons of regulation already. We don't need more regulation. What we need is more people understanding the regulation that we already have and figuring out ways to apply it and apply it in, in different ways. And that's what we're talking about here. Coming back to your, your last question, John, about um, the promissory note, I think what you're referring to there is an idea that's actually been floated around now for a couple of re- years, and that is having a safety-only approval. In other words, uh, when bringing a device, or for that matter, a drug uh, uh, onto the market, to show that the device is safe, never mind uh, efficacy, uh, but to just to simply show that it's safe. And then, as you suggested, <clears throat> maybe efficacy can be shown later through uh, post-approval studies or something like that. As a matter of fact, John, uh, some people have even taken that even further. They've suggested that FDA has no business uh, regulating efficacy. They should stick only to safety. Who do you think would be better at regulating efficacy? CMS. Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services. Because believe me, John, if CMS, regardless of whatever FDA approves or doesn't approve, if CMS doesn't see an efficacy benefit, what I mean here is a cost benefit, they ain't going to reimburse for it. And as a result, most people are not going to use it. So some people would argue that that FDA should be limited to just safety and CMS, you know, should be the ones that, you know, handle more of the efficacy piece. I think it's an interesting idea. Uh, I'm not completely sure where I fall on that one personally, John. I've thought about this idea for a number of years, but I do think it's another idea that's worthy of a lot of a discussion. One of the advantages for industry, though, is if we only had to show safety of a product, of a device, uh, then we would be able to theoretically get that device onto the market probably much quicker, which with less testing. Most interesting to me, though, John, is the last time this idea was officially floated, which was about two years ago, uh, the proposal to FDA was specifically for class three devices, not class two or even class one devices, but class three devices. I'm thinking to myself, well, gee, if you want to start this as a pilot program, okay, fine. I have no problem with that. But why are you going to start that with the highest risk devices? Why not start it with the low risk devices? But that is a topic of a different discussion. Yeah. Yeah. I know you and I've chatted uh, about um, breakthrough uh, device program and, you know, and as well as the step, the safer technologies program. Um, And I know there's a lot of confusion. I know some people, uh, companies who get their BDP, you know, they, they look at that or even step They're They're almost looking at that as a, the mechanism that they get FDA clearance and, and, and that sort of thing. So I know there's confusion there, but, but why do we have these programs? Um, if they, if they aren't, I mean, is it, is it purely about marketing? Is it, is it political because they're not pathways? What, what, what I don't know. Help me out a little bit. They are not pathways. You're right, John. And we've talked about both the BDP as well as the step and other podcasts. And I've done some webinars on these as well. So we can share those resources with our audience. But the question here, John, is in terms of improving the regulation and improving the efficiency. Why the heck do we have a one program for a BDP and a separate uh, program for step? Yes, the two objectives, the objectives of the two programs are different. The objective of the BDP is to show an increase in efficacy, whereas the objective of the step is to show an improvement in safety of the device or the procedure in which it's supposed to use. But other than that, the two programs are exactly the same or at the very least substantial equivalent. So I don't see the necessity of having two separate programs. I think they could be easily combined. And even more importantly, John, I have a big issue because, as you know, John, I have uh, now about a dozen devices in the BDP program. So I don't think there's probably anybody that has more experience in this area than I do. Um, Why is it that we can't include a BDP objective in an existing, in a a traditional pre-sub? In other words, 
if a company wants to submit a BDP, they have to do it separate and distinct, separate pre-sub. You cannot, as I like to say, co-mingle objectives. Uh, if you try, and I've tried this before, FDA will throw it right back in your face. Yeah, that's just I scary. see absolutely no reason why we cannot, or at least we should not have the option to combine or co-mingle them. But we take you know, all of our, our um, uh, the, the, the normal objectives of a traditional pre-sub, the regulatory strategy, the testing matrix, the clinical data plan, and so on. And then we just add another one to the list, and that is the BDP. You know, uh, to me, that would be, or, or the step. To right. me, that would be a much more efficient process than chunking it up and having so many different pieces. But that's a relatively minor suggestion, John. Well, but, I yeah, I mean, but, but it seems like that at the end of a pre-sub, like that's part of the decision. Does this product qualify for BDP? Does this product qualify for step? Yeah, like, like that's an outcome. But anyway, like yeah. that's And anecdotally, I have had traditional pre-subs where uh, just as sort of a, a side note, the reviewers have said, hey, this is an interesting technology. Why don't you consider doing it as a, as a uh, throwing it in as a BDP or as a stuff? You know, so some of the reviewers are already thinking in that direction. Good. To your point earlier, John, you know, this shouldn't be a difficult, a complicated problem to solve. But, you know, yeah, again, we are yeah. talking about large organizations here. So maybe it's not quite as simple as you and I would like to think that it is. <laughs> You know, there's there's probably a lot of other things, but in the interest of of your time, my time, and listeners' time, uh, let, let's start to put a wrapper on this conversation. So, what else you know is important? What what else big things do you think are missing uh, with respect to uh, regulatory um, vehicles or mechanisms or, or opportunities to improve upon our, our current systems? Yeah, great question, and. The, the, the last one that I would throw into to my laundry list of what Mike would like, you know, in the ideal yeah. regulatory uh, system, which is not what we have today. It's pretty good, but it's certainly not perfect, is, look, we really need a new pathway for personalized medicine. Yeah. Whether we're talking about personalized medicine of medical devices like 3D printed devices, you and I have talked about that a bit before, John, and I do a ton of work in that area, or uh, personalized medicine for drugs, when we talk about pharmacogenomics and so on. Either way, there's a heck of a lot more similarities than there are differences, but we need a pathway specifically for personalized medicine. Yeah. Contrary to what my friends at FDA would say, I believe the, the best pathway that we have right now it's not a perfect pathway, but the best pathway that we have right now for, for example, 3D printed devices is the CDE, is the custom device exemption. Yeah. Even though FDA has flat out said in guidance that the CDE should not be uh, used for 3D printed uh, devices or personalized devices, I strongly disagree. But that said, I think that we need a new pathway, a better pathway. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, as you and your audience probably know, John, we have now somewhere north of 100 devices that are 3D printed that have been brought through the FDA. I've had my fingers in many of them, certainly not all of them. I have brought more devices that are 3D printed onto the market under the 510K than anything else, even though I have said publicly many times that the 510k in my opinion is not the ideal pathway for right. personalized medical devices but in the absence of something better and in the <laughs> in, in in light of fda's feeling that the cde is not the appropriate pathway okay what do i have left I can't say to my customer, well, I'm sorry, guys, but you have to wait five or 10 years for our government to create a new pathway. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. As I said before, I refuse to let regulation, as, use regulation as an excuse to hold me back. So given the choices that I have today, even though none of the current choices are perfect choices or even good choices, I have to use one of them to get the job done. But would I like a new pathway, a better pathway? Absolutely. And I have a lot of thoughts on what that pathway might look like. And to be fair, we have had conversations at FDA over the years about creating such a pathway. But unfortunately, John, it is taking so long, it's really holding us back. And so that, that I think, is, is another, the big gaps moving forward you know, begin 2022 and beyond when personalized medicine is clearly the future, you know, for a whole bunch of reasons. For sure. Well, I a mean, a bunch of reasons. Yeah, for sure. And, and so, you know, I, um, you know, and, and maybe, you know, that is a takeaway. I don't know that it's all the takeaways today, but, you know, from this conversation, one of the takeaways that I've heard is clearly uh, there are not enough um, 
Well, there's things missing in our current regulatory framework from, from FDA, as we've chatted about today. And a takeaway should be, uh, don't let that stop you from making progress. Don't let that stop you from figuring out how to navigate the current options, the current pathways, the current system, if you will, to, to move forward. Um, I guess, you know, to kind of wrap things up, what, what, what takeaway would you like listeners to, to leave with today? I could not agree with what you just said more, John. Two takeaways. One is uh, the system is not perfect, and we need to have discussions like this and in as many different venues as we can on uh, how to make improvements and create new pathways and, and so on. Not, you know, quite frankly, if I can be blunt here, there's too much of the blame game. You know, there's too much, you know, right. bitching and moaning and groaning about what we can't do or we could do this, but FDA won't allow us to. That's not a productive discussion. Right. What we need to have is a discussion. I've tried to do this as much as I could today. You know, very specific, concrete, pragmatic suggestions. Maybe some of these suggestions have merit. Maybe some of them don't. But at least it's a starting point to have the discussion. In the meantime, that's uh, under the category of what I call, you know, altruism, making the world a better place. Right. In the meantime, to your point, John, and as I've said before, don't, underline don't use FDA or regulation as an excuse to hold you back. If you right. have, and I say this to my company, customers all the time. If you have an idea for a new device, uh, as long as you can sell it to me based on the biology and the engineering, don't worry about the regulation. We'll figure out a way. I'll figure out a way. I pride myself in what I call creative regulatory strategy. I'll figure out a way to get it through the FDA, but please don't use uh, FDA or regulation as an excuse to hold you back because that is not the way this game is supposed to be played. Yeah, Those are kind of my takeaways. John, anything you want to add to the list? Well, I'll just I'll just wrap it up by saying, you know, you heard Mike, his last words uh, are so true. You know, you maybe feel a little bit stuck or need to figure out a way uh, to, to navigate the options in, in front of you. Well, you know, Mike Drews of Vascular Sciences is uh, an masterful artist when it comes to creative regulatory strategy. <laughs> so, you know, reach out to the guy, you know, he'll, he'll help you figure out how to navigate this, you know, just because 510K is a workhorse does not necessarily mean that you need to shove all of your device submissions into that 510K. Maybe there are other options or other things that you can, could consider. And, you know, Mike is one of the best, if not the best at figuring that out. So reach out to him. Uh, as always, I want to you know remind you that Greenlight Guru, we're here to help as well. You know, we have uh, a, a software platform to help you document and manage all of these activities as you're going through design and development uh, and, and risk management, as well as you know, post-market and maintaining those products on the market and making sure that you're capturing what you need to from a document and record standpoint and from a quality event perspective. We have the only medical device success platform on the market today designed specifically and exclusively for the medical device industry by actual medical device professionals. So if you'd like to learn more about the workflows and how our products and services might be able to help you. It's pretty simple. Go to www.greenlight.guru. And if uh, you'd like to reach out to us and have a conversation, just click the button, fill out the contact us, and we'll we'll have a conversation with you, see if we might be able to help. So I encourage you to check that out. Lastly, as I uh, wrap things up, I want to thank you for listening uh, and watching uh, the Global Medical Device Podcast, the number one podcast in the medical device industry. And that's quite simply because of you and you continuing to spread the word with your friends and colleagues. So thank you for doing so. As always, this is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.